This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 188. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season five of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get this season started. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 46 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In the last two episodes, Kate, John, Morgan, and Lizzie descended into an abandoned water treatment plant, which is apparently being used as an underground base by the sinister Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. They were following the trail of Will Carrenson, Callie's boyfriend, who was kidnapped by the cult. They found Will in an older tunnel that connected to the plant proper, in a storage cage that had been converted into a makeshift prison. Will had been questioned and tortured by the cult, and somewhere along the way, he had received a severe concussion. By the time Morgan examined him, Will was bleeding into his brain, and would die if he didn't receive medical attention quickly. Kate knew that if they called emergency services, it would reveal to Captain Shaw that Kate knows about the Brotherhood. The cult would go to ground again, and Kate would lose any chance of bringing them to justice. Instead, Kate agreed to an emergency intervention by Morgan, who fed Will some of her blood. Vampire blood is packed with nanopixies, tiny magical microorganisms that carry the vampirism contagion. Once they were inside Will, the nanopixie set to work, repairing the damage to his brain and body. But since Morgan didn't drain Will of his own blood, they couldn't complete the process of turning Will into a vampire. The syndicate uses this blood gift in order to create servitors called ghouls, humans who've been supercharged with enhanced strength, rapid healing, and heightened aggression. The process is addictive, but in this case, Morgan judged that it was worth the risk. At the same time all this was going on, pulses of death mana were running through the tunnels with increasing strength and frequency. These pulses were being released into the ley line by the Brotherhood, apparently as part of some kind of ritual to make contact with their imprisoned god. In this magical environment, Morgan's blood worked even faster than expected and Will quickly regained consciousness. As Morgan tried to usher him out of the cell, though, a latent spell was triggered, trapping Will, Morgan, John, and Kate inside. At the same time, a portal on the opposite side of the cell began to open, reeking of sulfur. Will hadn't just been left by the Brotherhood to die, he was the bait in a summoning trap, and now Kate and her allies have been caught in it. Lizzie ran for help, intent on getting Callie down to the cells so she can break the trap from the outside. 
But as a massive, long-limbed monster pushed its way through the portal, its mad, red eyes glowing with rage and hunger, it's an open question whether any of them will still be alive by the time help reaches them. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 46 Kate thought she was ready when the monster pushed its way through the portal and into the cell. The tactical part of her mind took note of the creature's general anatomy. Two arms, two legs, a hunched body, a large head on a strong neck. She assessed its weapons, sharp teeth, claws on its hands and feet, and its likely vulnerabilities, the excessively long limbs and their oversized joints. The smell of sulfur suggested it was a daedra of some kind. Mithril or holy weapons would have been ideal, but regular bullets should at least take the fight out of it. All of this ran through Kate's mind in the space of two heartbeats, as she took aim with her sidearm and began to squeeze the trigger. It was when the gunfire erupted all around her that things went suddenly horribly wrong. Morgan got her shots off the fastest, burying three big-game rounds in the Daedra's chest. Black blood sprayed across the wall behind the creature, and suddenly Kate was looking at the thrall in the parking garage, the blood spraying from her shattered skull as Kate stared down the sights of her pistol and squeezed the trigger twice. The image lasted only for a second, but in that moment Kate's gun wavered. Her finger froze against the trigger. Then John hit the Daedra with a face full of buckshot. The blast shattered teeth and tore ragged chunks of meat from the creature's face. And then Kate was looking into the gaping hole where the thrall's face had been. She heard a horrible, unearthly scream, and it seemed to be coming from the woman without a face— a shriek of horror and pain, an accusation at Kate, the woman who had ended her life. The gruesome scene played out on a relentless loop. Each new gunshot brought the nightmare back in crystalline, merciless detail. It was more than just a memory. She saw the woman fall, again and again, saw the fatal wound gaping up at her. If she had reached out just then, she felt sure she could have put her hand in the woman's warm, sticky blood. A cloud of black crept in from the edges of her vision. Suddenly, she became aware that she could not breathe. Her heart pounded so hard she could feel it against the inside of her chest. A ringing filled her ears. A crushing tightness surrounded her, squeezing her lungs. She tried to gasp, but no air came. With instincts honed by years of training, she did not drop her weapon. She did, however, crumple in place, falling to her hands and knees. She still couldn't breathe. Oh, Eli, she thought. The danger's not going to even get the chance to kill me. I'm dying already. The black closed in, blocking out her vision. The ringing in her ears deafened her. And still, with every gunshot, the image of the dead thrall flashed before her eyes, the gaping wound a silent accusation. Murderer. 
Murderer. Murderer. John was not a violent person by inclination. He had been raised in the polite world of the Metamore nobility, where being stabbed in the back or cut down over dinner were mere metaphors for more genteel forms of social maneuver. He had learned to shoot as a child, but not in anger. His putative father had been a war hero, and he had insisted that John be trained in proper marksmanship, in case he should ever be called upon to serve as a military officer. John had not been afraid of guns as a child, but he had never loved them either. Even after being cast out of that world, John had avoided the brutality of street life by attaching himself to the Church of Hedonism, one of the wealthiest religious organizations in the Empire. John had never had to fight for a meal, or for territory, or to affirm his dominance in the pecking order. But the fact that he had lived a comfortable life did not mean he was defenseless. Incubi were not the most combat-capable of the Lesser Daedra, but he still had heightened senses and strength compared to a human, and his body could heal relatively quickly from most injuries. He also had the supernatural powers of his aura, which he could form into a cloak of protective darkness, or use to amplify his natural charisma. But more relevant to the current situation, a year ago he had nearly been killed during his missionary work, thanks to an overly protective butler who disapproved of John's relationship with his master's wife. After that, head priestess Jasmine had insisted that all priests at the temple take self-defense classes. John had applied himself to the practice with the dedication that only a brush with death could inspire. Now, John faced a much more visceral sort of threat, in the sense that the Daedra in front of him looked like it might want to tear out John's viscera and eat them. There would be no talking his way out of this, no playing for time, and no last-minute rescue from a woman who loved him. Not that Morgan wasn't trying. She stood squarely in the Daedra's path, drawing its attention, challenging it with a cold stare directly into its glowing red eyes. The pistol she held was designed for putting down bears and boars, direwolves and shadow cats, and she put a tight grouping into the Daedra's chest before John even had his finger on the trigger. If she was trying to enrage the monster, she succeeded. It shrieked, a hideous and unearthly sound, and then charged at her, moving on its feet and knuckles like a gorilla. John took advantage of its distraction to get off a shotgun blast to the side of the Daedra's face and neck. It reeled, stumbled in its charge, and whipped its head toward him. A long, clawed hand flashed out at him, but John danced out of the way, sidestepping to the right. Morgan seized the opening and fired another shot at the base of the creature's skull, trying to sever the spine. It was a solid idea, but the target was a small one. The shot went slightly wide and caromed off the thick, sloping bones of the skull. The Daedra shrieked again and spun back toward Morgan. They might have kept up the game like that for a while, harrying the monster from all sides until a lucky shot brought it down, or the creature collapsed from blood loss. Any such plan was put to rest, though, when John realized two facts in quick succession. The first realization was that Kate had not joined the fight. Looking across the room at her now, John saw why. The detective was on her hands and knees, gasping, 
in the throes of what looked like a full-blown panic attack. Every time Morgan's gun went off, Kate's whole body convulsed and shrank in on itself, like a dog that had just been kicked. The second thing John noticed was that another clawed hand was pushing its way out of the wall. Shit, 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 shit! With the maneuvering they had been doing, John was now less than two meters from the portal. He could move in to point-blank range and attack anything else that tried to come out of the wall. The summoned Daedra wouldn't be able to see what was on this side of the portal until they pushed through it, any more than John could see what was on their side. And if they were hurt, as soon as they started to push through, they might have second thoughts about trying. But standing guard over the portal would put John in Morgan's line of fire, directly behind the Daedra. Morgan was limited in how far she could move to the left or right, because she was already keeping herself between the monster and Will. John didn't think she'd noticed Kate's predicament yet, because she almost certainly would have shifted left to try to protect both her and Will, limiting her mobility even further. The first Daedra, fortunately, didn't seem all that interested in Kate. Morgan had heard it, and it wanted payback. But if a second Daedra got through, it would almost certainly go for the defenseless human first. There was another option— a frankly insane option, but one that would probably work for John, if he understood the magic involved. But there was no time to second-guess it. If he was going to try it, it had to be now. Morgan, cover me! he shouted. Then he gripped his shotgun firmly in his hands and charged for the portal. Morgan must have seen what he had in mind, because the big pistol fired and the second Daedra's hand split in half. The hand flinched away and started to withdraw, back into the wall, and just before it disappeared, John leapt forward and grabbed the clawed hand with one of his. There was a sudden feeling of gut-wrenching vertigo, and then John found himself outside and falling downhill. His feet skidded on a scree of sharp black volcanic rocks. He let go of the Daedra's injured hand, letting it retreat. John used the moment's pause to take in his surroundings. The sky overhead glowed a sullen, angry red, with no sun, moon, or stars to be seen. A blasted, ash-covered landscape stretched to the horizon, broken only by the occasional boulder or dead, blackened tree. Behind John, a volcano rose in a steep, steady incline, up to a cone still belching ash and smoke. The stench of brimstone filled the air, and if John had been human, he would probably be asphyxiating right now. But John was not human. He was a Daedra, and so a portal built to give passage to Daedra had worked for him. He only hoped it would work just as well when he used it to go back. The Daedra had stopped running about four meters down the slope, and now it spun around to look at him again. John could almost read the murderous thoughts behind its red, hateful eyes. It wasn't alone, either. Further off, John could see more of the monsters approaching, drawn by the subliminal call of the summons. No doubt the cultists had targeted their spell precisely, aiming for one of the darkest, most brutal corners of the dreamlands, one that would attract the most vicious and bloodthirsty sorts of Daedra. It was a nasty trick not just on the mortals who got caught in the trap, but also on the Daedra themselves. What looked like their salvation 
a chance to escape the dreamlands and make their way to better hunting grounds on Earth, would lead them only to a magical cul-de-sac, one that would spit them back out into the dreamlands when the spell expired. But they wouldn't know that until John and his friends were already dead. Unless... Hey! John called at the monsters. Any of you speak common? The Daedra snarled, circling him warily, but made no other response. John thought some of them might try to pounce on him any second now. Well, when in Pyralis, do as the Pyralians do. John called up the full power of his aura, letting it spread around him like a mantle of darkness. John compared it to one of those lizards that puff themselves up to make themselves look bigger to prospective predators. I'm here, it said. I'm not going anywhere, and I can take you. So just try it, big guy. John wasn't actually sure he could take even one of these things, much less half a dozen of them, but the threat display made them wary, made them second-guess themselves. It gave John time. Time for Morgan to deal with the monster back in the real world. Time for the spell to run down. Maybe even time for him to think of something brilliant to get out of this. The Daedra started creeping closer again. John checked the side of his magazine, counting the shells remaining, and decided he could spare one. He let loose a blast of buckshot at the nearest monster, hitting it squarely in the face. It made an awful, bloody mess, and the creature shrank back, shrieking and clutching at its injured muzzle. The others stopped their advance, snarling. John wondered if they had ever seen a gun before. Probably not, he thought, some insanely rational corner of his mind still assessing the situation strategically. This is the Dreamlands. They don't have gunpowder here. Hells, they don't even have iron, so they couldn't have. Hey, wait a minute. John wasn't sure whether the idea he'd just had was brilliant, or even more suicidal and foolhardy than what he'd already done. But things seemed to have worked out all right so far, and it wasn't like he had time to stop and think through all the implications. So he pulled out one of the long hunting knives, a long steel hunting knife, then stepped two paces forward, knelt, and stabbed it point-first into the ground in front of him. The effect was immediate. The ground itself screamed, a soul-wrenching sound of agony and outrage. The blade turned white-hot in seconds, and the ground around it melted into lava. John backed away in a hurry, as the lava expanded outward in a slowly growing circle. Black smoke circled and spiraled upward over the blade, as if the air itself were burning. Suspira's tits, John thought, wide-eyed. I wasn't expecting that. He'd known that iron was anathema to fairies and other natives of the dreamlands. He'd hoped that its presence would draw their attention to this spot, and maybe they would close the portal as an unwanted incursion into their space. But he hadn't known that iron was so destructive, so poisonous to even the land itself. John, old boy, you just brought nuclear waste to a knife fight. The Daedra didn't seem to understand what had happened, but they didn't like it. They circled the growing pool of lava, growling and snarling, 
shooting suspicious looks back and forth between John and the knife. One of them made a complex string of guttural noises. It might have been speech, but it was no language John recognized. A second beast answered the first, then craned its neck back over its hulking shoulders, scanning the horizon. So, they can speak. John had learned a little of the infernal dialect used by the older Incubi and Succubi. It obviously wasn't the same language these Daedra were using, but maybe they would be familiar with it. He decided to give it a try. No go in the light door, John said carefully, pointing at the portal. Bad, bad death inside. He felt stupid talking like this, but it was about all he could manage with his limited command of the language. The Daedra went very still. They stared at John as if he had just grown a second head. After several heart-pounding seconds, one of the Daedra answered him. My brother went in the light door. The light door says there is food inside. The light door, um, says bad things, John hazarded. Damn it, you'd think a Daedra would learn the word for lies. He go in, he not come out. Bad death. The second Daedra spoke up, sounding urgent. We must go. The pretty ones come. John frowned, wondering if he had heard the creature correctly. The pretty ones? A ball of light appeared on the horizon, flying through the air and growing rapidly closer. John squinted, and he could just make out humanoid figures inside it. They had broad, flapping wings, with a span of at least three meters, and they were carrying what looked like spears in their hands. John had a sudden, sinking feeling. The pretty ones, of course. Devas were celestial killing machines, and they would gladly cut down any Daedra they happened to run across, including John. Well, boys, John said, switching back to common, this has been fun, but I think I'll take my chances with your brother. Good luck. A ray of golden light came from one of the Deva's spears. It shot past John's head, causing a small explosion as it impacted the slope behind him. Chips of scalding hot rock flew up, burning holes in John's jeans. Shit! John turned and ran for the portal, as fast as he could manage on the unstable rocks. At the same time, he spread out his aura, forming a cloud of darkness around him that would obscure his precise location. Behind him, further down the slope, John heard the other Daedra screaming in agony as more of the blasts struck them. Two more shots cut through John's smoke screen, narrowly missing him, before he reached the portal. He shoved his hands straight into the middle of the symbol, praying to whatever gods might be listening that the spell would still work for him. His hands passed through with some resistance into a cool, damp-feeling space. He pressed his hands against cold stone and heaved himself through with all his strength. Another wash of vertigo, and then he tumbled out onto the floor of the cell. For a moment he just sat there, panting, his back against the wall. Get up, a voice in his head screamed at him. Get up and fight, damn it, it's not over yet. 
But before he could even try to stand up, a hand as hard as stone had seized him and slammed him against the wall. And that's the end of chapter 46. Come back next time to find out what happens to John and his allies. Kurt Vonnegut said, The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of making life more bearable. Practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow. So come along with me, and let's grow our souls together. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 1,696 words this week, over the course of 2.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 617 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 217 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on edits for Homecoming. I'm at the stage now where I'm making lots of little tweaks and adjustments, which don't affect the overall word count that much. That's one reason why my word count is lower this week. On days when I'm not adding new words, I use the Pomodoro technique to keep track of my editing time, just like I do when I'm editing a podcast. One Pomodoro means spending 25 minutes of uninterrupted time on a single project. Then you give yourself a five-minute break to go stretch, go to the bathroom, check social media, whatever, and then you start your next 25-minute stretch. It's a good way to stay focused on big projects, and I recommend it for anyone who's trying to improve their productivity. Over on the Patreon campaign, I've posted the new Chapter 2 for Homecoming. This one continues to introduce the characters and setting to new readers, and sets up the plot in a way that hopefully will be more engaging than what I had in the first draft. It's visible to all patrons at the $3 level or higher. If you like my fiction and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the single best thing you can do to support me. For a small monthly donation, you get special bonus content, and you provide me with a stable, ongoing revenue stream, which helps me plan for long-term investments like cover designs, print copies for sale at conventions, and interior artwork for future editions of the books. Roughly 91% of everything you donate goes directly to me. That's a higher percentage than for any other revenue stream. If you'd like to help me out, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's best for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. One brief programming note before we go. I'm taking a break from the podcast next week because Mel and I are going out of town. We're celebrating my 40th birthday and our first wedding anniversary, so we're going up to Baraboo in Devil's Lake for the weekend. I'll be back in two weeks with Chapter 47. See you then! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. 
My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.